The Quarantine uh, Conversations mini podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today, we're focusing on pride in earth sciences and speaking to members of our community who belong to the LGBTQ rainbow. Uh, today, our interview is Anthony DiStefano, an atmospheric scientist. I know, Anthony, in, in this uh, series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a researcher? Um, I'm a student. You're a student. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I guess also a researcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're an atmospheric scientist. That's a term we don't often hear. Uh, how would you define an atmospheric scientist? Hmm a scholar of the atmosphere, uh, broadly speaking. I think an atmospheric scientist, uh, I, I believe it combines all kinds of different areas that look at, um, I mean, meteorology would be an example of one nested field in atmospheric science. I think it's just, it's a broader term that encompasses multiple sciences that look at the, that analyze the atmosphere in some measure. I think air quality would be another area, uh, another, area of atmospheric science that is not meteorology, for example. So I think that would be my loose definition of what an atmospheric scientist is. I think anyone who studies the atmosphere in some capacity. <laughs> I guess you could say the definition is up in the air, right? I don't know. I think there is a definition. It's just not coming to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I think you summed it up pretty well. <laughs> um, how did you get into this field? It's not one that you often think about. No, you're right. In fact, I think what got me into it was when I was younger, I watched a lot of disaster movies. So I was of the era of um, Twister and The Day After Tomorrow and all those really bad, in hindsight is, is awesome, really bad weather movies. And it really got me feeling interested i think extreme weather is an extremely interesting area and i just followed it i i i i had i wished i had seen more of it when i was in elementary and high school because that's when i had started to see these movies and i, and I was wondering why don't they teach these things in, in these areas and i think they were just teaching all the foundations that eventually once i got to my undergrad that's when I really started to see the applications of things like math and, and physics and chemistry and computer science. And, uh, and, and actually, if, if I would add anything to the definition of atmospheric science as I know it now, it's a really, really fun application of a lot of, a lot of foundational fields. Uh, I, I mean, including math, physics, chemistry, and computer science. And so I came to understand that once I actually entered the field and yeah, so I think it started off with disaster movies and then I just sort of followed the interest in extreme weather until I found a degree program that taught about it and just came to learn what, what it takes, I guess, to be a part of the field. And there's a lot of, in, in my particular department here at UBC, the focus is on um, weather forecasting for uh, energy, renewable energy, and also for extreme weather here. So that incorporates then knowing all these different other foundational fields in order to apply them. Is that something you enjoy, the, the diversity of scientific challenges? Um, or do you prefer to focus in on, on one aspect and use just like one side of your brain? Hmm. I love, I actually really love the intersectionality of these different fields. 
I think w one thing that's interesting to me about science in general is that there are so many things that are analogous that we wouldn't necessarily think to put together. I think one time I remember, this is a bit of a tangent, but one time I remember going to the dentist office and I was having a conversation with the dentist and we were talking about what we did and and I, I, I spoke with them and, and what we were talking about was some of the things that we had learned when we were getting to our respective areas of, of study. And, you know, at the dentist office, they use, you know, x-rays. And so there's some, uh, I, I saw a remote sensing thing happening there. And we you know because that, that's how they detect whether or not you have uh, the positioning of your teeth and whether or not you have hat cavities, et cetera. And, you know, the same way that they use waves to find that, we use waves in things like radars to detect the different kinds of precipitation that are falling in the atmosphere. And so, you know, dentistry and atmospheric science, who knew? <laughs> but I just think the technology and the, in many ways, the methods of doing things are so similar across very disparate areas in science and i think that very very much interests me so to get to your question about whether i like to stick to one area or dabble in multiple areas i think just by virtue of doing any one area we end up doing things that are by their very nature applicable in so many different ways <laughs> so i think the answer ends up even though if even if i were to say that i like to stick to one area that one area probably uses methods and techniques that are, have been applied in so many different areas that have nothing to do with you. So it ends up being that I, I love to dabble in different things. Uh, that is something I really find interesting about um, all of you scientists is that you often take something from um, very disconnected fields like dentistry and atmospheric sciences and find commonalities and, and similar ways of doing things. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I, I love it, I love it. You're a very creative bunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever used that to make any big discoveries or uh, have you found anything that you're proud of? Hmm. To be honest, right now, uh, I'm still, I had taken a, a, a bit of a break from school. When I started my degree here at UBC, I was, it was really the first time I was thrust fully into research. And I had a lot of courses and I had a lot of developing to do and I had a lot, a lot of things to learn. So I didn't really make any discoveries for my own research. And now I'm kind of getting back into it after having taken a break and I am more quickly coming back to where I was, but still not at a place where I can say that I have found myself something of interest. What I will say is that one thing that I learned about my field with respect to society is that I do, I, I have come to notice and observe that there and I think this happens in many scientific areas that there's a disconnect between scientists and civilians what we do in our community and what the and and the ultimate beneficiary of our work what they perceive so what I mean by that is what I noticed is that the thing with weather forecasts a lot of people don't understand or or don't ever have anyone explain to them that they are inherently complex and extremely difficult to verify accurately. So I think a lot of people look at a weather forecast on, on their TVs or their, their laptops, or they watch the, the, the weather network or, or anything like that. And when they see, you know, the bright sunshine, little cloud and nice 
little beautiful mediogram symbols, they might they might just by virtue of looking at it all the time say that is that will happen. And so I think what's what's lost is, for example, the idea that it's all probability. It's all probability and statistics. So people get very attached to their forecasts. And when it goes wrong, I know many a tale of people getting very, very upset because they actually think it's supposed to, they believe that it, it's going to happen exactly as the scientist says it will. But I think what's lost uh, and what makes at once the field very interesting, but also can make it a bit confusing, I suppose, if people don't understand it, is that it's very complex. We're trying to model the entire atmosphere on the same machine that I'm using to talk to you right now, as an example. So there's a lot of error that happens. And I think beyond a few days, it's really, it actually is really difficult to predict accurately. So uh, yeah, I think that's something that I learned. And, and, I, and I, I see that as, as an area of interest for me because I do want people to be more, I think people should, should give, be given the credit they deserve. I think people are very smart. And I think we can probably say more about what's going on in our media weather forecast coverage and the way we communicate with the civilians. And I think we can share that it's highly probabilistic, be prepared for everything. And yeah, I think, I think that's something worthy of exploration is that disconnect and how we can bridge the gap a bit more. Excellent. Yeah, the more I look into it myself, um, the more I realize that atmospheric scientists, sciences is very complex. And um, I honestly don't know how you make any predictions at all. It's impressive. Um, and it also seems like you've actually been getting a lot more accurate um, the last few years, which is something we don't often uh, recognize. Um, yeah, you're going by leaps and bounds. Yeah, well, I think that is largely a function of computing power. So I think over the last 50 years, since the dawn of the first computer, it, we have seen computer power increase, and that does help very much. It means it takes a lot less time to make a forecast than it, it had. That being said, I think there's so much research going into sensitivity. So if I change this in the model and I try to make it more accurate, what is the downs like what is the effect going up and down the scale of the model and how does it affect this variable and that variable and sometimes what we find is the change we want to make that's positive that we think is going to make it a model more accurate ends up making something worse because there's so many interconnections that make that model work and so when we when we tweak one thing we might inadvertently end up changing something else so there's so much sensitivity testing going on these days. And I think that will hopefully, so in combination with the increased computer power that makes us, I think it definitely has increased the accuracy and the amount of time it takes as well. I think in combination with just understanding how models work, you know, if we choose to make this model, it's gonna do what the weather does. We wanna always try and make it more and more representative. But the more we understand how that very model is working and, how we can make those changes, I guess, functional, I think that will end up taking us even further as we go forward. Okay. That's an interesting way to look at the, the future of the field. Um, that's not something we often get to, to discuss. <laughs> um, now, you are doing research right now, right? Yes, I am. Uh, could you provide, sorry, provide like a two or three sentence um, description of what research you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. 
extreme weather in BC looks a lot like extreme wind events and significant precipitation events. And by precipitation, I mean heavy rainfall, sometimes even snowfall. And what I am researching is how to make forecasts for these significant rainfall events more accurate. And my method is to go into the weather model that I'm using and make tweaks to it, I guess would be the, the simplified way of, of talking about it, but basically make changes to it based on real science and physics that will hopefully make these forecasts more accurate. Because if you make the idea is if you make the model more accurate, then you hope that the forecasts that are created will be more representative of what's actually going on. And I'm choosing to look specifically at the physics that the physics, the physics in the model that create clouds and rainfall. And that's it's very, very high, high, high resolution. We're talking about on the order of like individual <laughs> crystals and, and rain droplets and how those are created and grow and, and then fall. And that's it, it's it's definitely a task, definitely a big task. So it, it's it's a big adventure for me to, to look at it that way. And do you test your models by like uh, traveling back in time and trying to predict past events using the data from those times or or how do you test your models? Yeah, well, I think in general, what a uh, yeah, we we do have a lot of a lot of sources around the you know in North America, but maybe in the whole world really, have saved their data. So there are there are there are forecasts. So we can create our own forecasts. And actually, I, this is might might be something a lot of people don't know is that UBC through the uh, Earth Ocean Atmospheric Science Department and my in my particular. My particular research team, the weather forecast research team, under Dr. Roland Stahl, we create our own weather forecasts. And we also have an observation center on the rooftop of this building, uh, the building where we are in. So we get to create our own forecast and then we pick observations as much as 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 good as observations as we can find. And then we just we just match them. It's really just on very basically, we can even learn something from just forecast minus what actually happened and see what that error is. And if we see a large error, then we try to we try to figure out, well, what is the model doing that is not matching these observations? And there's error that comes from both. But I think when you have, we have the, the power to actually create the forecast ourselves. So we also learn how to go in and validate them and verify them and, and see what they're doing. That's something that we can do as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've listened to the, uh, the weather briefings that you and Dr. Stell's students um, do, and they're really interesting. Um, and it, one of my favorite parts is when you uh, go over last week's uh, atmospheric predict predictions um, and compare them to what actually happened and try to explain uh, why there were any variances or, or why they were accurate. Um, yeah. yeah, for someone like me who's not an atmospheric scientist, I find that it really brings this high level information down to... Um, something that I can understand. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so, I quite love to do them because I think that, you know, the more, the more we use computers to do a lot of what we do, it, it can be difficult to remember as, as theoreticians, as people who know the theory so well, it can be hard to remember 
our theory. <laughs> if we start giving everything over to computers, then there's much less for us to do. So there's much less opportunity to talk about the things that we know. And so having these briefings for us as a team, it just gives us all fresh reminders once a week of how the weather works from a theoretical perspective so that we can then understand what our models are doing. But then also, like you said, I think opening it up to the community so they can see that they can see what we do and, and understand a little bit more about what, what challenges and benefits come from weather forecasting. I think it's a, absolutely a great thing. And I'm glad that you've been joining. I think that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I've always felt very welcome in those briefings and the atmospheric scientist uh, students are, are always uh, a very warm bunch. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes. Now, um, is there, do you get onto the field? Is there a field for atmospheric science? No, there is not. Not in my particular research anyway. My research is primarily in modeling work. So I'm pretty much behind the computer most of the time. And I, I just work with the weather models. Okay. I, think, I think, again, I, I tried to find my own ways of getting some field work in, which basically looks like going outside a lot, looking at clouds and trying to understand what's coming by eye. I think because you because there is evidence when you if you look at the sky long enough, you do find evidence of an approaching system or you do find evidence of things clearing up. It just takes a lot of practice and understanding what the clouds are doing and, and what the air is doing around you and, and whatnot. So I think I've just been certainly for me anyway, I've been finding opportunities to be in the field, quote unquote, if not just to keep the knowledge fresh. I think it's so important to have something outside of the lab environment that provides the, the reason and the context for why it's so important. And so, I don't know, I think that's one small thing that I do to uh, get myself out there, if you will. <laughs> Not quite the same thing, but I know other lab mates have done field work in our team. I think one in particular that I'm thinking of, Dr. Rosie Howard, I remember she her research was she did her research at the time when the Olympics were happening in 2010. And she went up there and, and got to actually, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm accurate about what her study was. But in, in, in any event, part of her study was looking at snow forecasts for, uh, for the Olympics. So she got to do it. And I, and I know a few others as well who have done, you know, gone to dams or gone to wind farms across the province. So I think there have been some who have done it. I just haven't had the chance to myself like that. That's not uh, something you often think about. Become an atmospheric scientist and go to the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I think it's always fun again to just have those opportunities to see the fruits of our labor in, in a way. I guess we work so hard to, as part of this field to, again, I mean, one of the major goals is to make forecasts more accurate. So it's kind of nice. I'm happy for anyone who gets the opportunity to go and see what that looks like practically. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly valuable too. It's uh, so much different than just seeing numbers on a screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's good to reinforce it to us too. Um, yeah, it just feeds our human nature, even though, uh, you, your scientists. <laughs> um, now, your research, of course, has some real-world applications. Uh, you mentioned a few, but are there any others you'd like to bring out? Yeah, absolutely. 
I think the major one for my research, I would say, is not only do we care about having accurate forecasts for severe rainfall events for the purpose of the community, flooding is a problem, especially when we get to the spring and summer and we have severe rainfall accompanied by melting snow and runoff. The combination of those can be devastating for people living in areas where flooding is a larger risk. But in addition, I mean, throughout this whole crisis, the COVID crisis, there have been a number of institutions or areas that have have remained open because they're, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they're necessary services. So one of those is our energy company in the province, which is BC Hydro. And they've continued to run uh, as much as possible throughout this whole thing. And for them, because they are monitoring their dam levels, so, so the hydroelectric dams are, are monitored and, and used for their energy planning as well. And so it matters to them that their forecasts are as accurate as possible because if they anticipate a large rainfall event, then they may decide to raise or lower the dam levels because it could flood. Or, but also even more generally speaking, without the necessary danger, just knowing what kind of energy budget to expect from both wind and rainfall will help them to understand what kind of resources to allot. And then of course, knowing how it's consumed throughout the province, then you know they can find their balance. And uh, so, yeah, I think the for me, the it's sort of two part. One is the effect that it has on the community in terms of flooding. And the other part is BC Hydro, as an example, does care about having accurate forecasts so that they can manage their energy budget. And luckily in BC, we, it's, I think it's 90% of our energy production comes from hydroelectricity. And I think another small percentage comes from our wind farms. So it, it matters. As, and, and even though it's a very difficult thing to study, as I said, I mean, accuracy is something that will continue to be studied for forecasts for a very long time until we have computing power that is incredibly faster than it is now. But they, it still matters. And so every ounce, every little bit of work that goes to making them more accurate does help for these two respective areas. So it's not just for planning picnics and... <laughs> no, it's not just for planning picnics. I, and although, and again, I guess comes back to the way that society perceives them too, right? So, you know, I, I think uh, having more accurate forecasts while still making it clear that it's still a probability, even though the probability might be a little bit more representative of what's actually going on, I think <laughs> it kind of, it, it comes back to that, I guess, for me. Uh, be prepared for anything. If you want to go on a picnic, make sure that you're looking at the forecast continually as you get closer and not just kind of look at it from a week away and then not look at it again at the risk of being disappointed. <laughs> that would be my advice. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm glad you explained um, why hydro dams are, are important um, or, or why they care about the atmospheric sciences. You mentioned dams before and I, um, I thought I misheard you. <laughs> um, but that makes complete sense. It's something I never would have expected. Um, so thanks for explaining that. Yeah, of course. Um, now, do you have a favorite part of your work or something that excites you the most? Hmm. Or direction the field is going in? I would say, yeah. I think I've gotten, I've, I've improved as a programmer over time. And so I quite like the prospect of I mean, as of late, I am more excited about 
kind of getting online and, and, and getting to my work and, and starting to code things up. And, and like you said, it, it, in, in many different ways, it is a very creative um, undertaking to work in science. And we get to actually create things that work for us and produce things that we like and make really nice, beautiful figures. And there's a lot of creativity that does go into it. So I, I always do, and I always do love trying new things out. And uh, so that's something that I look forward to in my research. I'm excited about the, I'm excited to just become even more immersed over time into what our, like what my area is and cloud physics really is, is such a, it, it's, it's such a, it's a field that looks at very, very, very tiny particles and how they evolve based on the environment in which they're in. And it's such a, it's such an interesting area. And, and I do love slowly becoming immersed in it and, you know, tapping into that community of scientists in meteorology who look specifically at that. I like that. I like the connections that can be built from looking at any one particular area. Cause I think everyone everywhere in this area is trying to make something better. So the more connected everyone is, I think the more rapidly science can advance. So I think it really is a function of different perspectives and different approaches to things and the more we know about that what's going on I think the more it can inform our work so I think that's what excites me too so in in summary I'll say I love the creative aspect of it and I think largely for a modeler like me it's making cool scripts that do really cool things and having built ex enough experience to know what I'm doing and how I'm creating certain things but also I love the prospect of getting so immersed in my area that I end up you know connecting more with people who are looking at very similar things and sharing our research and what's going on and and ultimately many people are working toward the same thing we're just in very different places in the world so having that knowledge is uh, that uh, of other people and what they're doing i think is really really exciting yeah. i guess you could describe the field as a bit nebulous what does nebulous mean <laughs> uh cloud-like <laughs> oh my gosh yeah that's that okay that's a lot of I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I think it means like it's a bit diffuse, but also interconnected. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm going to remember that. I, I, I think it's a little sad that I don't know that word, given the word it's defined as. I hope yeah. I'm using it right. <laughs> Sorry? I hope I'm using it right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I, I don't know. It is what does interest, what is interesting. I mean, this is my perception, of course. I don't really know too much about how how much students are becoming engaged in a field like atmospheric science it seems to me like it's it you know when you said at the beginning of the interview that it, it seems like a rarity to come across someone who's studying this i i think i agree i mean our our undergrad uh programs are a little small at the moment and i think it could be just a function of where we're located i mean in the u.s where severe weather is just extremely abundant in, in many different forms i think that there, there is a larger count of students in different programs, but I think it's growing. It's, it's a very vast field. I mean, compared to other sciences, meteorology, I would argue, is a very young field. It's maybe within the last, within the time that we first had our first computer, maybe a bit, maybe before, but as, but as a defined field of study, I would say maybe within the last 50 years, it's really started to come into its own. So I'm excited about more opportunities opening up for lots more students to join and be a part of it. Um, I think I lost track of the initial question at this point, but I hope I've answered it. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's nice that you bring up how young the field is. Um, 
I think when young people are looking for a field to go into, um, they want something where they, they can make a bit of a name for themselves. So it's nice to know that uh, while we have learned a lot with um, atmospheric sciences and meteorology in the last little while, uh, it's still very young and there's still a lot of discoveries to be made. Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, now, today's uh, podcast is all about celebrating um, uh, queer people in earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences. Uh, however, we also realize that this isn't always the case. Uh, in general, have you found the field to be uh, welcoming or hostile? And has there ever been an occasion where, where your orientation has affected your work or, or your studies? Hmm. I'll start with the latter question, and then I'll make my way to the former. Yeah. So I would say no. Uh, I have not, because of my identity, experienced any kind of hardship uh, in my field. And I understand that that's not always a universal thing. One thing that, it, so I mean, something that I, I didn't really bring up much in this interview is uh, I, I, I really also, in addition to being a scientist, I really love education. And in the time that I've become a scientist, that I've evolved as a scientist, uh, even in my earlier years, in my undergrad, I was also engaging in, in, the, in the practices of teaching and learning. And one of the things that's come out of it is just uh, a really deep knowledge over many years and a lot of you know, volition to want to learn things, but a lot of understanding and learning about things like privilege and power and bias. And I know most recently at UBC, they just offered this course on Canvas that in five modules teaches people about the language and, and what they mean and how it affects the practice of teaching and learning and why it's so important to consider those things in the way that we teach. So, you know, in saying that I haven't had any, uh, any really difficulty because of how I identify, I, I mean, most obviously I'm not a, a visible minority. So I know that, uh, I can, you know, change what I wear. I can change uh, how I show my identity, and maybe it will say something about me. Maybe not. But um, I recognize the privilege of my social identity, which is, you know, being white and, and being male. And it it means perhaps that because of I haven't experienced any kind of difficulty because of those things. Um, I, it does. It, it, it's it's disheartening and disappointing that that's not a universal feeling. And so, uh, what I what I'll say about it is, being an education enthusiast, um, for me, it's all about what do we do with it. You know, if, if if I know a lot of people probably look at what's going on and they feel like they they can't identify. And so, like, what can I do? I don't even know where to start. And uh, what I would say is one thing that I've come to learn. And, and I still am, I will keep learning until the end of days, but um, if we have power, we have absolute responsibility. And so we all can do something with it. And uh, I'm thinking about things I can do. I have a few ideas. I wish that I could be protesting. It's what I would normally be doing, but given the, the circumstance of COVID-19, it's unfortunate that I've not mustered the courage to go, but I think there's so many other things people can be doing. And so, uh, I haven't, anyway, in, in summary, I haven't experienced anything because of my identity and because of uh, the fact that I uh, am part of the LGBTQ2I+. But I think I want that to be more of a universal feeling. I want fewer people to experience, I want more people to experience that in science. Um, so that I, I just feel that that's what, how it should be. So 
I think it takes work and I'm willing to put that in. So that's my little spiel on that. <laughs> I'm really glad that you brought up that question. It's an important one. Well, I mean, you're, you're uh, participating in today's interview, which I, I hope uh, makes other people feel uh, more welcome in the field too. So uh, hope, hopefully this is contributing. <laughs> Yeah, and it brings me, and I, 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 it brings me to the former question because um, I think largely. So I, I'm a big believer that the work is as good as the worker, and so if workers are not feeling welcome, are not feeling included, are not feeling that they uh, are not feeling like the space is equitable, and they're not feeling like they're being treated in the same way, the work will show. Or even if it doesn't show, it probably comes at the expense of, of really feeling safe and, and having a safe environment is so important. And I have to say, my research team has been a very, very safe space for me. I have to say, I, I, can't, even, uh, I can't even point to any moment where it hasn't been that way. It's been a very welcoming environment. Many of my peers are friends. I think one thing I miss most about being in a lab is, is, is the company and the camaraderie that we all share. And we all do so much different research, but we help each other. Everyone is very friendly. And again, unfortunately, something that I'm not sure is widespread is that I have a supervisor who really does care about making the environment as such. Uh, and, and, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't uh, been lost on us, the conversations that have been going on throughout the university about Black Lives Matter and police brutality. And in my lab, we've been, we've been trying to become more educated as a lab environment. And we've opened up those conversations. And so that, I think that just speaks to what I've felt all along, which is that it does feel very safe. So I, I don't know if I can speak for beyond my lab uh, experience, but I can certainly say that in atmospheric science in my lab at UBC, yeah, it, it's been a very, um, it's a very fruitful, uh, it's a place where I feel like my research has been fruitful. And that is, I feel, a function of how safe and welcome I am. It just makes you want to work harder. It makes you want to participate more. And so, yeah, I, I wish that for everyone who's in, in their grad studies. I really think that that's important to have that kind of space. Great. It's good to know that you can have those, um, those difficult conversations with, with colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of um, missing your colleagues, um, COVID-19, of course, ha has um, separated you from them. Um, has it impacted your work? Have you been able to work mostly um, unimpacted or, or has completely derailed some of your research? No, uh, again, another, another point of privilege I must bring up, I guess, from the nature of my area, but because it's mostly numerical modeling, we have been able to work from home and we've continued to work from home for about the last two months or more, I'm not even sure. Um, yeah, so we're able to work remotely and, and full access and we've now set ourselves up to go in very infrequently following the guidelines that have been put out. So you know, only one person in my lab allowed at any one time. We have to schedule when we're going in. Everyone has to know, and there can't be more than one person. And so, but, but I think we've largely been able to work from home. So it hasn't been too, too affected. I think the main, the main difference, and coming back to the last question, is just like, as a team, it, it does feel nice to have people around you working. I, I don't know if it's one of those things of when you work in a team and everyone's working, you get that kind of constructive feeling of, okay, everyone's looking, I'm looking around, I wanna be, I wanna be working too, okay. And, and so it's like this mutual, uh, 
mutual uplift from everyone when they're when everyone's doing their work, and then everyone takes their coffee breaks and say, "Okay, I'm gonna go to Island of Disco." All right, uh, so that's nice. I miss that feeling of the community in my team, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not forever. Uh, I mean, I, Dr. Bonnie Henry, I watch her every day, and uh, she, she's very clear. I mean, and even even as human beings, we know it's not forever. It's just for now. So. Uh, I, I'm excited when that becomes a thing again. I'm very excited for that. Now, I do have another COVID question, uh, kind of a, on a personal note. Um, with, have you noticed any changes in the global weather just due to the decreased uh, industrial activity and decreased air travel? Or um, is the world just so big and um, the systems are so uh, complex that that hasn't even registered? Mm. That is such a good question, and I actually have some answers because I've been thinking about this myself for a while. So I had taken a break from school, and when I came back, I wanted to look at something that would inspire me to get started. I, I don't know. I felt like I, I had, I had when I took my break, I didn't have any work left to do. I kind of just went off, and so I wanted to start myself back in a way that would get me feeling inspired to start working more consistently. And that thing was that very question was. You know, there. What a time to be alive! You know, COVID nineteen is spreading. It's affecting a lot of people, um, and you know, we've started to see statistics of who it's affecting. And you know, the more and more articles are now coming out saying things like, in spite of all the suffering going on, um, there seems to be this environmental response that's being observed. I think the first thing that was observable was the air quality. Places, very populous areas like um, Peking in China and uh, even here in North America, uh, great decreases in greenhouse gases produced by transit and cars. Um, But then the effect that that has on weather, that's an interesting question. I think, for me, the first... To the first order, what I thought about was climate models, because climate models are showing, climate models look at very much the worst case scenario of things. And if we continue up on this, you know, gradually incline, gradual incline of CO2, um, you know, where will the tipping point be reached? And what, and, and therefore, what do we have to do? But I don't think models <laughs> probably have not incorporated a massive global pandemic in their, you know, in their modeling. And it's very much, you know, an experiment, really, because we're now seeing what happens when everywhere, everyone is doing the same thing and, and there's reductions in many places. So, you know, part of me thinks, well, what what changes if we have this now slight dip in our CO2 emissions or slight change, you know, and if it's long enough, what does that do? That That's a lot of, it introduces some new questions because we just never thought this was going to happen. And I think part of me feels a little sad that, it, you know, People wonder that people think it's impossible, absolutely impossible, to cut down in emissions. And so I, you know, this, if there's any, if there's any good at all that comes out of this, hopefully it's the knowledge that it is possible. It just takes a concise uh, effort and it has to matter. It has to be an important thing. It cannot just be, you know, the same way that social distancing is very important. It has to be important that we reduce CO2 emissions and it has to be a uh, like backed by policy and and everyone needs to be on the same page especially global superpowers have to be on the same page because they produce the most and then it is absolutely possible because everyone does it everyone is doing it 
And this is the evidence right here. So anyway, I'm hoping that climate model will show something different. In terms of weather, well, you know, weather is just, uh, climate is just weather over long periods of time. So I don't, I mean, I imagine the effect on weather might be changes in the way that we, that clouds and precipitation are formed and distributed. And the reason why is that most people don't know that you know, when, you, when, when you're a kid, your parents tell you, you know, don't, don't stick your tongue out when it's raining because like you shouldn't, don't do that. And, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, most raindrops uh, in our atmosphere near the ground, certainly, uh, or in the lower part of the atmosphere, um, they form when cloud droplets sort of become attached to particles, sand, salt water, and pollution. So if we change the kind of the amount of pollution, does that change how many droplets are forming in the air, clouds and rain? Who knows? That might be the next area that I would look at. So in summary, two particular areas where we can, and I'm sure it is a thing to start looking at this. I'm sure scientists are jumping on this bandwagon because it's such a, it's such a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it, it's such an unprecedented scientific event. And I'm sure there are people in the world looking at this, but I would say climate modeling and the effect that, you know, the reduced pollution has on that. And also if we want to look at smaller scales, so like weather scales, maybe have a look at how decreases in pollution in certain areas might change the way that clouds and precipitation are forming in the models. And what does that say about forecasting? Interesting. Yeah. Very good question. Very, very good question. I like that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't too much of a curveball. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, Anthony, I've had a blast talking to you today. Um, anything you want to say before I let you go? Yeah, you too. Oh, say again? anything you want to say before I let you go? No. Uh, well, okay. Let me think about this. That wasn't a question on the list, so I want to, I want to think about this. Hmm. My second curveball. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, hmm. I would say that in the same way that science is growing and evolving, you know, science is for the people. I think everything we do is to advance as, as a human race. And, but I think what's also happening more now than before, and I hope it stays that way and the conversations continue to happen and it's not just a moment or a trend, but the scientific communities themselves are becoming educated on society and social identity and things like bias and power and privilege. So my hope is that up and coming students, if you're watching this, whether it's in my area or any field, conversations are starting and they should have already begun, but let's just say that COVID-19 has managed to make us all still for a moment. So we can now really be paying attention to things that we should have been paying attention to. And my hope is that these conversations will continue such that when people join graduate studies and go into departments and go into research teams and start doing their work, they feel safe, they feel welcome, they feel included, and they feel like the conversations matter. And my hope is that more and more that's the case. So join science, be part of the change. <laughs> <laughs> that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um... And I think it's a great way uh, for me to say, have a good, good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's, it's a pleasure, obviously. 